You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Explorers. Today, for your listening pleasure, we have for you Part 5 in our ongoing series on Christopher Columbus. Wow, Part 5. That makes this the longest series that we have ever done on Explorers. It has been a big undertaking, and I hope you have enjoyed it thus far. So, with that said, on with the show. Last time we had left Columbus in Spain in 1496 after his second voyage. Well, voyage is probably not the best term. It was really an enterprise, one that included exploration, but most importantly, it covered the colonization and pacification of the island of Hispaniola. A lot had happened on this second voyage, and I don't want to spend a huge chunk of time recapping the past few episodes, but here are four points that I want to mention. First, Columbus's actions were devastating to the native people of Hispaniola. He had introduced slavery, he had conducted a brutal pacification campaign against the populace, and he had destroyed the economy of the island, which led to the deaths of tens of thousands. It is a legacy that hangs over his head like an anchor to this day. Second, he was not making a lot of money. The gold on Hispaniola was not as plentiful as he believed, and there was no Asia, no China, no Spice Islands, no invaluable trade route to the fabled lands of the Far East. And when you don't make money for people, they will turn on you. Third, Columbus was worn down, physically and mentally. He suffered from arthritis, deteriorating eyesight, depression, anxiety, and a growing paranoia. He began to feel as if the world was against him. And finally, Columbus had pissed off a lot of people. He had been an incompetent and heavy-handed administrator, and an erratic leader. And let's not forget that Columbus was Genoese by birth, and many people did not trust him. Juan de Fonseca, the bishop who ran the Spanish overseas colonization efforts, despised Columbus. In the end, Columbus had just made too many enemies, and those enemies had their daggers out for the admiral, both in Hispaniola and in Spain. Thus, as the charges and accusations against Columbus mounted, he had been forced to return to Spain in 1496 to defend his actions as governor of the island. And that sort of gets us up to date in our series. Columbus was back in Spain, having returned after two years in the New World. His health was bad, and his critics were many. As for Columbus, he cloaked his struggles in religion, something he often did. He viewed his failures as a test from God. In fact, he would embrace this woe-is-me persona, portraying himself as a pious man who was being tested by agents of the devil. He took to dressing like a simple Franciscan friar, walking around in a brown robe like a destitute priest, showing to the world what a holy and upright man he was. 
Personally, I find this version of Columbus kind of sad and pathetic. He railed against the injustices inflicted upon himself, but he never thought twice to screw others over if it got him some sort of reward. Anyhow, despite these health and legal issues, Columbus wanted to return to the New World. Remember, he was technically, per his agreement with the Spanish crown, still the governor of all the lands he had found, and he was extremely jealous of these privileges that the agreement had brought him. But others saw Columbus as an obstacle to the growth of the Spanish Empire being established in the Caribbean. The Spanish king and queen were grateful for what Columbus had done for them. He had established a beachhead in what they viewed as a great Spanish overseas empire. But they had concerns about Columbus, and they had to be sensitive to the accusations leveled against him by other Spanish nobles. Taking all things into consideration, Isabella and Ferdinand would authorize a third expedition to the New World in April of 1497, with Columbus leading it. In some ways, you have to question the wisdom of the Spanish monarchs. I mean, Columbus had not really done that good of a job these past few years. But let us not forget that Columbus had been to the New World, and back, twice. It was him who had found Cuba and Hispaniola and Puerto Rico and many other islands. No one else could boast those accomplishments. In the end, his experience would get him another gig. For this third voyage, Columbus would be granted six ships. He was authorized to take 300 men with him. These would ultimately be a mix of treasure seekers and mercenaries, all heading to the New World to make a fortune. Many of the ship's rosters were filled by criminals, offered pardons to participate in the voyage. It was hardly the stellar compliment that Columbus desired, and certainly not like the last time when 1,200 men had begged to be part of the expedition. Getting the expedition together proved to be difficult, taking over a year to get organized. Bishop Fonseca, Columbus said, constantly threw obstacles in his path. Fonseca would divert supplies intended for Columbus, or he wouldn't release needed materials unless Columbus paid for them in cash. There's a story that Columbus got so enraged with Fonseca that he got into a fistfight with one of the priest's representatives. And while money would come from the crown for the expedition, it was not enough to cover all the costs. Eventually, Genoese bankers would step in to cover a good chunk of the expedition's expenses. Columbus would be immensely frustrated during this time, raging against Fonseca and his enemies. He claimed that he needed to get supplies to the colony. The truth is, Columbus feared his monopoly in the New World was in jeopardy. He wanted to get back to Hispaniola and the islands he had found to thwart others from encroaching on the lands he felt were his own to govern. In fact, other rival expeditions were in the works, and it is likely Columbus knew about them. As noted, Columbus would have six ships for this expedition, but half of those ships would head to Hispaniola, filled with much-needed supplies and provisions for the colony. So, in reality, Columbus's third voyage would really consist of just three vessels. Columbus's plan was to eventually reach Hispaniola, but first he was going to go do a little exploring. He had heard rumors of a landmass to the south of the islands that he had discovered. That was Columbus's destination. He hoped that this mysterious land would lead him to Asia, still the ultimate prize in his grand venture. Columbus and his ships would depart San Lucar de Barrameda in Spain on May 30, 1498, heading southwest toward the Canary Islands. Along the way, he would make stops at the islands of Porto Santo and Madeira, which were just north of the Canaries. Porto Santo was the native land of his late wife. After reaching the Canary Islands, as planned, three of the six ships would set out for Hispaniola, filled with much-needed provisions for the colony. With the remaining three vessels, Columbus would take on supplies and make repairs. He would then head south along the African coast to the Cape Verde Islands on June 20th. 
The Cape Verde Islands, which are a volcanic archipelago off the northwest coast of Africa, west of modern-day Senegal, were not part of Columbus's previous strategy to sail across the Atlantic. The islands, which are about 900 miles south of the Canaries, had been colonized by Portugal in the 15th century and were a key stop for many ships heading down the coast of Africa. But Columbus wanted to find the lands rumored to be south of his previous discoveries, and he decided that the Cape Verde Islands were a good jumping-off point. For Columbus, he was, without question, heading into the unknown, unlike his previous expedition. The Admiral and his three ships would sail almost directly west from the Cape Verde Islands, leaving on July 4, 1498. Unfortunately for the fleet, within a few days they would get caught up in what we today call the doldrums. The doldrums are low-pressure areas in the Atlantic Ocean, as well as the Pacific Ocean, around the equator where the prevailing winds meet and become not just calm, but non-existent. So, it was mid-July, and Columbus and his ships would be caught in the middle of the ocean with no wind. They were stuck dead in the water. And let us not forget, this is the equator, the tropics. The heat was intense. There were no clouds, no rain. The ships roasted in the sun. Meat quickly rotted, wheat withered into dust, water barrels ruptured, leaving supplies low, and men suffered from heat stroke. Also, the extreme heat did no favors for Columbus's health. The Admiral was 47 years old, not a young man for an ocean voyage. His arthritis was becoming crippling, and he reportedly suffered from gout. Also, Columbus's eyesight was suffering. It is believed that Columbus suffered from ophthalmia, an inflammation of the eyes, probably related to scurvy and a poor diet. Also, the years at sea had damaged his eyes from constant exposure to the harsh glare of the sun. Finally, on July 19th, the wind suddenly arrived and the three ships were swept west. For nearly two weeks, the fleet sailed into the unknown, but Columbus knew that they were in desperate shape. The ship's hulls were in bad condition, the result of shipworms, and more importantly, water was running low. Desperate, Columbus decided to turn north. His goal was to find Dominica, the southernmost island he had first sighted, when he had arrived in the Caribbean at the beginning of his second voyage. Doing so would mean he would have to give up his search for the rumored lands to the south. But before he went too far, the three ships would sight land on July 31, 1498. It was the island of Trinidad, which is just seven miles off the coast of modern-day Venezuela. For Columbus and the fleet, it meant survival, as they could now get fresh water, although they would not actually go ashore for two more days. Now, before we get too involved, I do want to say that if you want to get a good visual of all this, go to explorerspodcast.com. I have posted a map of Columbus's route, and it will help you understand what is going on. So, Columbus had found land, South America, in fact, although he had no clue what he was looking at. He sailed south of Trinidad, skirting the South American coast, leading his ships into what is now called the Gulf of Perea. The Gulf of Perea is a fascinating place. If you look on a map, you'll see that it is quite enclosed. It is also the location of the Orinoco River Delta. The Gulf itself is about 90 miles east-west and about 40 miles north-south. There are two entrances, one on the east between Trinidad and Venezuela, and one to the north, between Trinidad and the Paria Peninsula, which is a long, pointy landmass that sticks out from the South American mainland. Columbus entered from the eastern entrance. The Gulf of Perea is legendary for its dangers. In addition to the two channels in and out of the Gulf, there is a massive flow of water from the south, the result of the mighty Orinoco River, which empties into the Gulf. The Orinoco is, by discharge, the fourth largest river in the world. 
These two channels in and out of the gulf, plus the flow of water from the Orinoco, make for a unique mix, producing immensely strong and swirling tides and cross-currents that can pull a ship onto the rocks along the shorelines. On August 1st, Columbus would pass the Orinoco River Delta, which was to his south. He would recognize that the massive flow of fresh water meant that he had found a continent, not just another island. The lands around the Orinoco were so lush and teeming with exotic plants and animals, Columbus speculated that he had found the entrance to the Garden of Eden. I should also mention that the fleet was approached by the native peoples, but at this time Columbus chose to sail past the canoes that came out to greet the fleet. He was, however, disappointed to find that they were not Chinese. I also want to add that Columbus was physically disabled at this time. His gout and arthritis was causing him terrible pains, and his eyes were inflamed. The glare from the sun meant that he could barely see when he was outdoors. The fleet would finally go ashore on August 2nd at Icacus Point on the southwestern tip of the island of Trinidad, gathering much-needed water. They would then head north along the western coast of the island. On August 4th, the fleet anchored at the opening of the northern channel between Trinidad and the Perea Peninsula. In the early morning hours, Columbus would wake up to the sound of a mighty roar coming towards his fleet. When he went on deck, he would see a massive wave swelling towards the ships. This was, perhaps, the most dangerous moment in Columbus's life. Some sources say that the wave was a full-scale tidal wave. Others just refer to it as a massive wave or swelling. No matter what it was, it was a moment that could have destroyed him and his fleet. Miraculously, all the three ships survived the terrifying wave, but Columbus and his men would never forget this chilling display of power of the ocean. For this reason, the northern channel was dubbed the Dragon's Mouth by Columbus, a term that sticks to this day. On August 5, 1498, members of the expedition would land on Venezuela's Perea Peninsula, officially becoming the first Europeans to set foot on the South American mainland. Columbus was reportedly too ill to go ashore. Some sources say that another of the fleet's captains, Pedro de Terreros, claimed the land for Spain, raising a great cross as he came ashore. Another version of it has that the other fleet's captain, a man named Hernán Pérez, was the first European to go ashore. Ultimately, it really doesn't matter. What counts was that Columbus and his expedition had pulled back the curtain on yet another vast landmass for the rest of the world to see. Over the next week or so, the fleet would explore the Gulf of Perea and then exit the Gulf to the north and head west along the South American coast, finding the islands of Tobago, Margarita, and Grenada. During this time, the fleet began to engage with the local natives, usually striking deals to trade goods with the Indians, offering up trinkets for food and bits of gold, as well as pearls, which were plentiful in the area. Columbus and his men would find a vibrant and exotic world. There were endless types of monkeys, plus great cats, such as pumas and jaguars, and there were fish and birds beyond counting, all new to the eyes of the Europeans. Columbus reported seeing great oysters, which meant pearls, which we noted were common to the area. In fact, Margarita Island is often referred to as the Isle of Pearls. Of course, pearls interested the Admiral, because that meant money. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. In a lot of ways, the time spent sailing around the Gulf of Perea resembles Columbus's first voyage. He worked with the native peoples, trading with them, earning their trust, and leaving on friendly terms. Sure, he asked about gold and pearls, but in a lot of ways, he was just being overwhelmed by what he was seeing and experiencing. It was the first time in a long time that he had let himself be awed by the situation, instead of being overcome by greed at the first sight of gold or a handful of pearls. In late August, Columbus and his fleet set out north. The goal was to return to Hispaniola, the land he was governor of, the land he had not seen for two years. On August 31st, Columbus and his three ships would sight a sail on the horizon. It was a caravel, captained by none other than Columbus's brother, Bartholomew. Bartholomew Columbus would lead his brother to the newly established Santo Domingo, on the southeast shore of the island. Here, Columbus would find Hispaniola in open revolt. He would later write, quote, When I arrived from Perea, I found half of the people in Hispaniola in rebellion. They have made war on me. End quote. And make war they did. It seems that things had not been going so well on the island the past two years. Upon Columbus's departure, his brothers, Bartholomew and Diego, the latter returned from Spain, took the reins of leadership in the colony. The results had not been particularly good. The living conditions on the island had gradually deteriorated. Discipline amongst the Spanish was lax. Food was always an issue, and the natives, although technically pacified, were constantly a threat. The Spanish soldiers on the island began to resent the imperious Columbus brothers and the order that they tried to impose on the populace, and many were doubting that Christopher Columbus was ever coming back, so why listen to these Genoese brothers? What had happened was that, as time had passed, frustration and malaise had set in, and that had led to a growing and deep discontent amongst the Spanish on the island. Much of it, said Columbus, was about women. The Spanish soldiers were supposed to avoid taking mistresses, but such a thing was unrealistic. They not only took mistresses and wives, but they started to have children and establish homes. All of this would lead to the rise of Francisco Roldan, the mayor of the fledging city of Santo Domingo. Roldan had done well as mayor and earned the respect of his men, but he had quickly come into conflict with Bartholomew, the acting governor of the island. It was not hard for Roldan to stir the pot against the Columbus brothers. He pointed to the women the men were denied, the gold that was being hoarded, the pay that they were owed, the harsh working conditions, and the food shortages. As his support grew, open conflict erupted. Francisco Roldan would become rebel Roldan, and the man felt that he could depose the Columbus brothers and take control of Hispaniola for himself. The Columbus brothers would portray Roldan and his supporters as lazy and greedy turncoats, and there was no doubt some truth to that. But the colonists' discontent was real. Hispaniola was not the paradise that they had been led to believe it was. The conflict between Roldan and Bartholomew Columbus was a nasty, dirty affair. The sides never marched out their forces and men on the battlefield. Instead, it was a war of sniping and ambushes and threats. At one point, Roldan plotted to ambush and kill Bartholomew Columbus, but the plot failed. Roldan and his supporters went to La Isabella and seized the arsenal at the fort, as well as food and supplies. They then took up refuge in a place called Jaragua, in the southwestern portion of Hispaniola, essentially setting up their own kingdom. Neither side really had the power or will to defeat the other. 
The Columbus brothers had the official support of the crown, but Roldan grew more and more popular with the people as he portrayed his enemies as tyrants and thieves. It was a message that resonated with many on the island, as they had come to resent the Columbus brothers. Christopher Columbus would arrive in Hispaniola to find this quiet civil war in progress. Within weeks, he would offer a pardon to the rebels, saying that he would give free passage back to Spain to anyone who wanted it. But Roldan and many of his supporters were liking their life. They had lands and servants, women, wine, and freedom. Most of these men were simple soldiers, and going back to Spain offered them very little. Plus, we have to remember many of these men now had families on the island. This was a good gig for them. On October 18th, five ships would sail back to Spain. Two of the ships were filled with Roldan supporters, the ones that actually really did want to go home. This move would weaken the rebel leader. However, it would also add to the growing chorus of voices in Spain speaking out against the rule of Columbus and his brothers. This conflict between rebel Roldan and the Columbus brothers embroiled the island, and it would help contribute to the declining fortunes of the admiral. With the rebellion going on, Columbus didn't have the men to enforce the tribute system, stifling the already slow acquisition of gold. To help fortify his position amongst the Spanish colonists, Columbus and his administration took to giving lands to his supporters. These were large estates comprised of hundreds or thousands of acres, and the natives who lived on these lands would essentially become serfs, near slaves, to their new Spanish masters. This was the establishment of the encomienda labor system, a system that would become ingrained throughout the Spanish Empire in the New World. One thing that the encomienda system requires was laborers, and when there were not enough workers for an estate, the use of slaves quickly became the order of the day, and Columbus had no problem giving slaves to his supporters. This would fuel the discontent of the island's native peoples. In an attempt to bring Roldan's rebellion to an end, Columbus granted Roldan a large estate, essentially a town, to try and appease the man. Then, on November 11, 1498, he offered Roldan and his men 30 days to end the revolt. They would get full pay, plus two ships, for any men who wanted to return to Spain. Roldan and his supporters would actually agree to these terms on November 21st. They would not only get their back pay, but they would get to take with them their slaves, their mistresses, plus any children born to them. Columbus even agreed to write letters of recommendations for those leaving, saying what a great job they had done. It was a humiliating concession but if it got rid of the rebels, it would be worth it. Thus, Columbus thought he had things in order. However, as before, the rebels were just not that keen to go back to Spain. Sure, some of them wanted to go, but many were liking this life as minor lords, and attempts by Columbus to get them off the island kept getting delayed. Eventually, the agreement collapsed, and the two sides sort of fell into an uneasy truce, each leaving the other alone. For Columbus, rebel rolled down and his men were a humiliating presence, his inability to even confront the rebels demonstrates how weak his position was on the island. In August of 1499, Roldan and his men would make some new demands from the admiral, including more lands and properties. They also demanded that Columbus appoint Roldan as mayor of Santo Domingo for life. With his position weaker than ever, Columbus agreed. In some ways, this was the tipping point for rebel Roldan. He had lands and money and titles, and he was secure from losing those privileges. In fact, if you think about it, he now owed his fortunes to the man who hated him most, Christopher Columbus. Thus, in many ways, the tension between the two men began to abate, not that either trusted the other, but in reality they had come to an acceptable living arrangement. There was no need to stir the pot at this point. 
On September 5th, 1499, four ships would arrive at Santo Domingo. The leader of this fleet was Alonso de Ojeda, a Spanish conquistador who had been a pivotal part of Columbus's second expedition to the New World. The shocking thing was that Ojeda and his ships had come from South America, following Columbus's exact route he had taken a little over a year ago. This news devastated Columbus because he considered those lands that he had found to be his domain and no one else's. But the truth is, the Spanish crown was keen to get others involved in the exploration game. In addition to Ojeda, who was backed by Bishop Fonseca, other expeditions were quick to follow. Vincente Yanis Pinzon, who had been a captain on Columbus's first voyage, would reach Brazil in 1500. In the same year, Rodrigo de Bastidas would explore the northern coast of Venezuela and Panama. Ojeda's arrival was an insult to Columbus, and the Admiral's supporters were furious at what they saw as a betrayal. It didn't help that Ojeda had the support of Columbus's archenemy, Bishop Fonseca. Fights between the two factions would break out, resulting in many deaths and injuries. Ojeda, who was known by many in the colony, tried to stoke discontent on the island, perhaps trying to get the island's populace to reject Columbus as their leader and go with him. However, this time Ojeda was out of luck. Columbus's people spurned his offers, and the rebels, including Roldan, did so as well. As I said earlier, Roldan had a nice thing going on here, and the last thing he wanted was another charismatic leader being added to the mix. Finding no support on the island, Ojeda would eventually sail back to Spain. So, as the summer of 1500 rolled around, Columbus and his rival, Roldan, would find themselves at relative peace. However, two things were going to happen that would upset the balance of things in the colony. First, a lieutenant of Roldan's, a man named Fernando de Guevara, plotted to kill his commander, reportedly over a woman. The plot, however, was uncovered, and Roldan would try and imprison his former comrade. Also, he executed another man, Adrian de Mejica, a rebel who had sided with Guevara. The result was another round of fighting, as Columbus and Roldan, now working together, hunted down this new rebel faction. By mid-August, there were executions aplenty in Santo Domingo, just in time for the arrival of a fleet of ships carrying the man who would bring Columbus down, one Francisco de Bobadilla. So let us back up a little bit to bring you the story of this new arrival. Remember, Columbus had sent back shiploads of discontented colonists. Well, those people were making their unhappiness known, loudly and frequently. In the Spanish court, the voices against Columbus grew by the day. The charges and accusations were pretty much the same, incompetence, cruelty, and so forth and so on. Columbus's son, Ferdinand, would later write about this time at court, where he was a page. He said that he was constantly taunted by his father's enemies, being called the son of the Admiral of the Mosquitoes. Ferdinand and Isabella could no longer ignore the reports concerning Columbus and his administration. Thus, on May 21, 1499, they would appoint Francisco de Bobadilla as special prosecutor with orders to go to Hispaniola. He was to rid the island of corruption, investigate the complaints against Columbus, and send the admiral back to Spain. Bobadilla was granted the title of governor. It was pretty clear what was happening. Columbus was done. Bobadilla arrived in Santo Domingo on August 23, 1500. The next day, he would read off the new orders from Spain. Basically, he was in charge, and the Columbus brothers were to turn over everything to him. They had no more power. Among the first things Bobadilla did was to stop the execution of Spaniards, men who had been sentenced to death for revolting against Columbus's rule. He also stopped the disastrous tribute system and ordered the Columbus brothers to turn themselves in. 
the three brothers would arrive in Santo Domingo, where they were humiliated. They were arrested and put into chains. All that they possessed, gold, jewels, personal belongings, were confiscated. Columbus's downfall had been swift and hard. Next, Bobadilla began an inquiry into Columbus and his brothers. Let us make ourselves clear here. Bobadilla was not a friend of the Admiral. He was appalled that Spaniards were at the mercy of a tyrannical foreigner. Anyhow, Bobadilla's inquiry would not be pretty. After all, there was a lot to complain about with regard to Columbus, both real and imagined. With regard to the inquiry, the original 48-page report of Bobadilla's was discovered in 2006 in the National Archive in the Spanish city of Simancas. The report had testimonies from 23 different people, including enemies and supporters of Columbus. The focus was on the treatment of not just the Spanish colonists, but the natives as well. Here we have some of the items. Columbus had a man's ears and nose cut off for stealing corn, and then sold him into slavery. Bartholomew Columbus was accused of cutting out the tongue of a woman who said that his family was of lowly birth. Natives were killed and dismembered. Starving Spanish colonists were whipped for trading gold for food, which was forbidden. There were lots and lots of whippings and hangings, often without trial. Those are just a few of the items, but I think it's important to realize that Columbus and his brothers could be vicious when they wanted to be. When the inquiry was complete, Columbus feared that he would be executed. However, that was not to be. Instead, in early October, Columbus and his brothers were shackled together and marched to a ship in the harbor. He was then sent back to Spain to face his monarchs. The voyage across the ocean was another humiliation for Columbus, as he was ordered shackled for the entire voyage by Bobadilla. It was a thoroughly unnecessary deed, and even Columbus's detractors were appalled at his treatment. Columbus would return to Spain, arriving in Cadiz in late October. Even now his shackles were not removed. Columbus, never one to pass up being a good martyr, donned his simple Franciscan priest garb and walked through the town, showing off to the world what a humble and aggrieved man he was. On December 12, 1500, after spending six weeks in a Spanish prison, word would come from Ferdinand and Isabella, ordering the chains to be removed. Columbus and his brothers were invited to come to Granada as honored guests of the crown. The Columbus brothers would present themselves to the king and queen five days later. Columbus affirmed his loyalty to the monarchs and acknowledged that he had made errors, but that he meant no evil. He begged for their forgiveness and mercy. For their part, Isabella and Ferdinand lamented the arrest of Columbus and acknowledged that Bobadilla had exceeded his authority in his treatment of the admiral. And here, with one proclamation, they undid most of the works of Bobadilla, restoring to Columbus his rights and privileges. His personal property and gold would be returned to him, and he would still get one-eighth of the wealth of Hispaniola. However, not all was being restored to Columbus. He was not going to go back to Hispaniola. He was done as governor. Columbus had played a critical role in the establishment of the Spanish Empire in the Americas, but the king and queen of Spain knew it was time to move on from the guy. On September 3, 1501, Nicolas de Ovando, a Spanish nobleman, was appointed as the next governor of Hispaniola. Now, Columbus may have been put on the sidelines, but he was not done quite yet. But before we go there, I want to head back to Hispaniola to wrap up the story of a couple of our side players. In June of 1502, Francisco de Bobadilla, the man who had humiliated Columbus and sent him back to Spain in irons, was done with Hispaniola as a new governor, Ovando, had arrived. Bobadilla and his many supporters would set sail for Spain with a fleet of 31 ships. The ships contained much of the wealth that Bobadilla and his supporters had accumulated, plus gold and other valuables destined to the coffers of the Spanish crown. Much of this gold had been accumulated for years in Hispaniola. 
One source said that the ships carried 87 million Maravedis worth of gold on board, the Maravedi being a Spanish coin. I don't know exactly how much a Maravedi is worth, but it is not insignificant. As a reference, Columbus's third voyage cost around 3 million Maravedis to finance. So, we will just say that there is a significant chunk of coin heading back to Spain. Amongst the passengers was Francisco Roldan, Rebel Roldan, if you recall. Roldan had received a pardon from Bobadilla, and he was now returning to his homeland with his riches. Also on the ships was the personal property and gold of Christopher Columbus, which was now being returned to him per orders from the Spanish crown. On July 11, 1502, between the islands of Hispaniola and Puerto Rico, the Great Fleet would get sucked into a mighty hurricane. At least 20 ships would be destroyed. Some sources say 30 of the 31 vessels sank. I have read that more than 2,000 people died in the disaster. But we do know that at least one ship made it back to port, and that ship was one of the weakest in the fleet, the Aguja. In an interesting twist of karmic fate, the Aguja would turn out to be the ship that contained the personal property and gold of Christopher Columbus. As for Bobadilla and Roldan, two of Columbus's most hated adversaries, they would disappear in the storm, lost at sea with thousands of others. So Columbus's enemies were dead, and he had his gold back. As we said, a little twist of karmic fate. With that, let us go back for one last visit to Spain to plot the next step in the life of Christopher Columbus. In 1501, Columbus was a tired, unhealthy man. His eyesight was bad, his arthritis was only getting worse, and his depression and anxiety, not to mention his paranoia, only increased. Already a very religious man, Columbus would become obsessed with religion, cloaking his actions and the actions of his enemies in biblical terms. Another thing he obsessed about were the insults and slights he had suffered at the hands of his enemies at the Spanish court. Columbus never attacked the king and queen, but the rest of the nobility were fair game. He would write a book titled Book of Privileges, in which he would spell out all the stuff that he felt he was due. Titles, properties, money, awards, rights, officers, recognition... You name it, he wrote it down. He detailed how he'd been swindled out of it by unscrupulous nobles and vindictive court officials. The book was meant more as a legal document to support his claims, and the claims of his descendants, on things owed to him and his family by the crown. But in all of this, Columbus never wavered on what he wanted to do next. Almost as soon as he was freed by Isabella and Ferdinand, he was plotting yet another voyage back to the New World. And this would not be a voyage to go administer a colony. This would be a voyage of exploration, and trust me, it will be one epic in nature. So that really wraps up this episode, the complete third voyage of Christopher Columbus. Join us next time for his fourth and final voyage to the New World. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun, or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Egypt 
The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here.